0: Hello, and welcome to the Thought Leader's Voice. I'm your host, Rachel Kinsella, Editor-in-Chief at iResearch Services. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Paolo Cerrone to discuss unlocking innovation in banking and finance. Paolo is the global research leader in banking and financial markets at the IBM Institute for Business Value. He's one of the most respected fintech voices worldwide, providing business expertise and strategic thinking to a network of executives amongst financial institutions, startups, and regulators. He's a senior advisor and drives C-level conversations about business model adaptations in platform economies. Paolo founded the startup Capitex, which was acquired by IBM, and headed up the quantitative risk management department at Banker Intesa San Paolo. He's the celebrated author of several books on digital transformation, quantitative finance and economics, including his latest bestseller, Banks and FinTech on Platform Economies, Contextual and conscious banking. It's very much been hailed as a playbook and how to guide for uh, the platformization of financial services. Has had very high praise at, across numerous industry participants. So it's an excellent book. He's also a keynote speaker, of course, at major international events and regularly talking about these key topics. Very warm welcome to you today, Paolo. It's great to have you here.
1: Thanks, Rachel, for hosting me in this amazing podcast.
0: Thank you. So if we get started with the questions, we've really seen that the financial services sector has seen a massive shift, uh, not only during these times of volatility, but uh, over the past decade or so, post-economic crisis, firms are having to adapt to regulatory shifts, to geopolitical pressures, digital transformation, and changing customer demands all at once, from all angles, all sides, and all geographies. How do you think financial services leaders can best optimize their businesses to deal with all these shifts and to differentiate?
1: Well, Rachel, that's a very important question because it allows us to discuss the fact that the problem lays deep inside the construction of financial services as they are today. And to understand that, I want to quote the point of view of two central bankers that have been shaping the fate of financial services with their actions uh, since uh, the start of the global financial crisis. So I want to talk about what uh, Alan Grisman said to the Senate committee after Lehman Brothers defaulted in 2007, 2008, and what Mario Draghi said to the press uh, a couple of weeks before he left his office at the European Central Bank. So let's go back to 2008, 2009. Uh, Lehman Brothers defaulted, uh, the financial systems was at the brink of collapse. And the Senate committee asked the chairman of the uh, Federal Reserve uh, why this was happening, why financial markets were not functioning and banks uh, were at risk of defaulting at a massive scale. And basically, Alan Crispo responded that uh, uh, he realized there was a flaw in the model. He said that institutions, clients are not rational. They don't always work in uh, the worst so the best interest of, of the community themselves, uh, that means survival in the community, and the markets are not efficient as we thought. And he said, I'm disrupted and disturbed by the fact that it seemed to work for 40, 50 years. It's not working anymore, and we don't know what to do about that. So that means that there is a problem that lays inside uh, the construction of the financial system and all the business models that correspond to that construction. Years after said that is two years ago when Mario Draghi left his office at the European Central Bank, a journalist asked him uh, to comment on the opinion of a prominent CEO who was basically saying that negative interest rates, which have dominating the landscape of microeconomics in uh, European countries for the last years, uh, could collapse, then could create the next collapse of the financial system. And Mario Draghi said, well, I'm sure that banks will offer positive rates, right? And questionably, but goes. there are other issues that we need to consider, like the cost-income ratio, especially of European banks, uh, which is unsustainable, and then concludes saying that actually the thing that needs to happen is that banks have to adjust their business model to the digitalization of financial services. Now, here it again, adjust the business model to the digitalization doesn't mean to digitalize the existing business models. It means to change the business models with technology, to conform uh, uh, to a new macroeconomic environment, uh, to higher uncertainty, to different regulatory requests that came to the forefront uh, in 2007 when the global financial crisis started. So now the problem that we see today is that I think the banks understand what technology is. That's not the problem. They have a harder time to understand how to change the business model leveraging new technologies. So now, what is my work and what is the role of this new book, Banks and FinTech on Platform Economies? I've been traveling for IBM everywhere in the world before the pandemic, meeting clients, startup entrepreneurs, regulators, the broader public. And I think we can divide the world into three macro areas without forgetting anyone. The United States is where technology, digital technology was born 15 years ago. Think about the Silicon Valley. I know that the Chinese are becoming very competitive in terms of technology. Then you have Europe, where a lot of regulation is born, because the European Commission cares about building a common-level playing field for the Capital Markets Union, and there is a great focus in terms of attempting to protect the final investor, the final consumer. But Asia, in particular China and India, is where the fintech revolution is winning these days, because that is where most of the new business models are born. So my role is basically my curiosity to understand the variety of business models, knowing that what can work in China doesn't work in Germany, where I am now, or in Brazil. understand how hybrid cloud technologies can basically help these business models to scale, knowing that not all of the technologies are at the same level of maturity. What AI is today was not five years ago. What quantum is today is not what it will be five years from now. But keep everything inside the regulatory framework, which is the envelope but to make sure that this is sustainable so now banks and fintech on platform economies that uh, this latest bestseller takes uh, all of these elements uh, together and tries to provide a consistent answer that explains the lesson learned of the fintech revolution from the last 10 years uh, and what is uh, the most likely uh outlook of the industry a few years from now because it is already happening now
0: Well. I mean, that's no mean feat, bringing all of those different elements together and, uh, and looking at uh, what's scalable, what's future thinking around how these models can be developed and, and what the demands are going to be, and being able to translate that across different regions and, uh, and the various different nuances that are in play there. How does it work?
1: Well, you see, if you think about what happened on the internet, 15 years after the internet revolution started it was clear that uh, platforms uh, were the winners of the internet economy linkedin is the platform for my professional life I invite everybody to uh, reach out on linkedin facebook if you also want to reach out there is the platform for my personal life Uh, twitter used to be the platform with trump paranoia wechat is the platform of all platforms uh, amazon is a platform where i sell books but uh, What we don't see today is the platform for my financial life. Now, on digital, platforms will win as well. And those platforms will have to be capable of aggregating the full financial life of an individual uh, to an unprecedented level. Now, most of the fintech were focusing on using technology to unbundle financial services that happened in the last 10 years. But now is a time where they all try to Aggregate them back to rebundle them on the platform economy. That cannot happen without technology because platforms today are digital platforms. Now, the issue here is that platform businesses are not easy to run. No business is easy to run, but platform businesses are particularly complex. And it requires, in terms of working with banking, a set of changes uh, that enforce uh, the opening of the organization. We can discuss a bit during the podcast about this concept, forces uh, To blur the lines and not just within the institution to open organization but also outside the institution mixing a bit more banking and non-banking services and solution but also learning that uh, technology cannot replace all human relationships it can do for some banking services but not for other banking services can happen with payments might not happen that easily for web management therefore the platform economy will succeed in financial services if uh, Participants will be capable of uh, grading uh, the utilization of technology, partly to automatize um, and intermediate clients differently, and partly to augment uh, the capability of people to talk to people with better information, with more transparent approaches, and for a lower cost. Because that is essentially the problem, the commoditization of a lot of financial products, the reduction in margins, which benefits the consumers, but might also create uh, complexities in terms of servicing. Consumers and clients in this, but technology adds a lot of
0: value. Wow. I mean, the, as you say, there's, there's so many different elements to that, but it's not completely replacing the, that human element, but it's getting the, the key automized processes where applicable and having that relationship where it's appropriate. If everyone is trying to do the same thing in terms of um, financial services, how are they able to use these technologies? and this approach to differentiate?
1: Oh, it's all about uh, relationships, because relationships are the new product. And um, that means a lot of financial products are becoming utilities and commodities. Uh, payments are super important for data, but they are a commodity in terms of degeneration of margins. Not everywhere in the world. In the US, uh, margins are higher than in Europe, but the trend is for the margin compression. The same happens with uh, the credit function. So it's difficult to price that relationship with negative low interest rates, investment products and commoditize it through passive investing, transparency regulations, so and so forth. The insurance still a bit less, but it will happen there too. So now the product that uh, used to be the center of the marketing mechanism and the proposition of value in front of the clients. And because the products were embedded, embedded basically the remuneration Now those products are commoditizing. So that pushes the value into the relationship, in terms of economics as well, that forces it to understand how to differentiate on the relationship. Now, differentiating on the relationship needs to be done on both sides of the equation, the human and technology, and there are a variety of um, methods to make sure that uh, you can differentiate there. First of all, technology enables you to be there, where and when the client needs to consume financial services, so in the process of eliminating of the elimination of the friction so that you will recognize that basically your journey is a better journey because financial services is done in ways that are almost instantaneous, right? Does not require much of an hassle, which today is not always the case. And that you really see in the platform economy. But on the other side, you would differentiate on the transparent relationship. Transparency builds a trust in the relationship. And I can give you a clear example for this one uh, that is taken from the no banking framework, uh, and it's an example of Amazon, which, Jeff Bezos, uh, which I report also in my book, Banks and FinTech on Platform Economies. Uh, it's a personal story that tells you when I was a young banker helping my brother in the 90s to build the Amazon of Italy. We he, he wanted to sell uh, the best uh, of Italy: furniture, fashion, food, and travel. And uh, I guess you never heard about the Amazon of Italy because. It never took off. <laughs> it was a failure. I mean, I, I, you know, um, entrepreneurship is not always successful. I was very happy. I mean, we had this slick web design. I thought that we had everything we needed. It didn't work. Now, many mistakes we made, uh, and many lessons learned we gained. But one in particular, I realized when I heard that Jeff Bezos, years after talking uh, on 60 Minutes, I found of mistaken. If the journalist asked Jeff Bezos, what's Amazon? And Jeff Bezos responded that Amazon is not a distribution channel of books. And I'm like, uh, no. Well, at the time, you know, I'm older than you. Amazon was primarily selling books. And, and also the journalist was frowning. He was puzzled. So Jeff Bezos explained, you see, the publishers are sending me letters complaining that I don't understand uh, marketing. Now, call him stupid. Uh, and the reason he said is because I allow users to publish positive and negative reviews. And they say, just publish the positive reviews because uh, that helps us to sell more distribution channel products. But he said, I'm not a distribution channel products. Now, here what I'm telling you. Is a bank, is a fintech a distribution channel of products and digital or not? Amazon was not. So Jeff Bezos says, you see, I am not a distribution channel of products. My role is to advise the clients, the people in the platform, on which is the best book to buy. As I, and as I cannot take the book in their hands, smell the globe open and look at the pages. The way I resolve uh, this gap between the intention, the motivation and the execution is to use reviews to build a trust with this transparency element. Only after I created the trust for the consumption, I use other analytics in order to improve the relationship and the engagement on the platform. So that means that uh, transparency builds a differentiating value because it creates trust that makes the relationship stickiness and that means that enabling clients to be capable of consuming financial services more autonomously also in a relationship when they are if you like empowered to understand more builds that differentiating element which is called trust and only after data driven banking can basically take Place and be optimized because you can start producing more and more uh, information and opportunities that benefit the client. But the trust element based on transparency is the one that differentiates uh, banks going forward uh, on the platform economy.
0: Wow, yes. I think it's a really interesting example that you've shared, and uh, you just have to think of it through a different lens. And that's got me thinking whether fintechs and tech focused firms have more of an advantage over the traditional financial services, because they're already set up with those sorts of models in mind. Would you say that's the case?
1: Well, I don't think so. The advantage is in the middle. Because I saw a lot of fintechs, neobanks, thinking of becoming marketplaces of products. They thought we are selling products, transaction fees. But the embedded commissions are lower and lower, and therefore it should become a bigger, bigger, in upper volume. That doesn't always happen, right? It don't have that scale all the time. All in payments, maybe that can happen not in other businesses. Uh, on the other side, but they have the capability of understanding how to build a business uh, based on a more agile, linear, less expensive technology, right, more cloud native. Banks on the other side, that they might have a lot of issues in terms of the way they're managing that complex business, which is layered through, you a variety of decisions taking through 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years. But they have the human relationship that they used to play right now. You see that some of the most prominent syntax learned that they had to bring the human relationship inside the framework. For example, the robot advisor. So they that still successful. They opened it to the human relationship. They're not only digital is model. And banks on the other side, instead, are learning how to transform their uh, infrastructure with every cloud technology, not just to lift and shift what they do, but basically to start embracing this new way of thinking, this mindset shift that you were mentioning that will enable them to go through the journey. And then we will see, if you like, uh, most likely the convergence between the style of a bank and the style of the fintech, that in the middle where most of the value is for clients.
0: I see. Yes. So they're both working towards these frictionless digital relationships that that you talk about. And uh, rather than uh, promoting digital products or digital relationships, they're coming at it from different angles.
1: Yes, there's no space for products, right? Uh, But the remuneration is different. So what happens is that the relationship, which is the engagement element, uh, needs to take center place. And that it will imply very the time the transformation of the way the revenue is generated. So what the client is really paying for. Client will go paying for accessing the platform, whether it is a contextualized platform from a non banking perspective, or it is an advisory relationship that is built around the human and digital relationships. But that is the way the money will be collected by banks in front of the client, which forces them to be more transparent, more trustworthy and uh, more frictionless
0: so it's that loop between relationship transparency trust
1: yes it doesn't happen in one day but we clearly see what i clearly see it is happening now uh different intensities around the world according to the jurisdiction the regulation the client adaptation to digital services and so on and so forth but that is the direction
0: have you got some good examples of organizations that are doing this well
1: well In Banks and Fintech and platform Economies, I build uh, the banking Innovation Quadrant. uh, That basically is a map that enables uh, the banks to go through these uncharted waters of digital transformation to generate real value. And I'm setting the transparency principles as the compass for them to understand how to box out from the existing uh, product distribution mindset uh, and land into this outcome-oriented, digitally human perspective uh, that enables them to see a remunerated relationship as the core element of uh, The financial services engagement model. Now, there are two strategies in this quadrant. One is called contextual banking platform strategy, and the one is called conscious banking platform strategy. Basically, it is the need to eliminate the friction that makes banking contextualized, that means embedded into another industry journey. And that's one way of doing it, where the bank is there just to eliminate the friction. And there are banks that give you an example that are doing this. And then these other one the conscious banking uh, that starts from the fact that uh, the need uh, to demonstrate value that clients have to pay for access to the financial services platform forces banks to be transparent. They can be accepted this new direct, more transparent and uh, visible relationship. Now, uh, some banks in particular uh, in Asia Pacific, but also in Latin America, which is an important deal. Uh, one of these is SBIO. State Bank of India. State Bank of India used to be a very traditional bank, 350 million customers that is bigger than the US population. And they realized a few years ago that uh, they needed to make a a leap forward into the digital future, right? So India has been investing a lot into the Indian stock, the um, the digital identities, uh, the unified payment systems, and so on and so forth. And so SBI decided to build You Only Need One, which is uh, the marketplace. Very interesting, is like, uh, like Amazon, more successful than Amazon for some products, but that is uh, based on a digital wallet that enables to start transforming the new relationships uh, into a digital payment mechanism with a client in onboarding. And there is uh, on the side a digital bank that helps them to position investment opportunities and insurance opportunities. So this is the example of a bank that created an ecosystem platform in order to onboard clients in a different way. And mix and match the two words in a regulated market, because India is a regulated market. On the other side, instead, where banks are not contextualizing, but banks are building conscious relationships with the clients, where the clients know, the clients know they are into this relationship. We can think about what happens in the world management space, because world management owning planning is the new secret sauce, if you like, the new center of the inverted business model of banks. And the reason is because if you need to build a personalized relationship in a bank, you cannot do it with investment products, but you need to do it discussing the liabilities of people. That means their, their loans, their mortgages, their debt, their human capital, you know, the education for the children. Now, the problem is that a lot of these things are not remunerative for the bank because of low interest rates. Investment products still are, but they're commoditized. So combining them into the financial wellness discussion, which is a planning exercise that is centered on the world management discussion brought down to the level of the affluent is basically the new business model. Now, if I ask you which is the biggest uh, Swiss bank, you might say it is UBS. Hmm. If I ask you which is the second largest bank in Switzerland, you may say it's Credit Suisse. Not rightly so. And the reason is because FTSE Russell, that makes these stock indices, took UBS and Credit Suisse out of the banking index two years ago, saying they're not banks anymore. They are the first an asset manager, the second diversified financial conglomerate. And the reason they said is because most of the revenue don't come from core banking, traditional businesses like credit, like this kind of stuff, payments, but come from the world management relationship. Now, Debt management relationship, which is based on products that are getting more and more commoditized, is forcing banks like UBS to start offering to enter the US market, for example, portfolio management for zero commission. And then ask the clients to enter into a paid relationship, right, which is a fee business, in order to basically continue the conversation to have a more thoughtful conversation. So that's a mix between digital orientation and human advisory method. So that's an indication of where the industry is going to. You can think about what. Morgan Stanley did uh, after the global financial crisis, shifting from an investment bank to uh, one of the largest wealth management institutions. And Goldman Sachs is attempting a more ambitious, but similar route. So you just need to be, if you like, attentive, uh, to understand how the revenue mix is shifting and where technology is inserting into the transformation of the relationship to see basically these two trends happening, contextual banking, and conscious banking, both on platform economies.
0: It's fascinating. And you know, so much of that has come through the regulatory shift, but also the changing needs and, and demands of the end customers and being able to use technology to leverage those offerings and to be able to differentiate in these tight markets.
1: Yes, it's a mix of both. The client is adapting to digital and is demanding more, but the clients cannot tell you, give me this business model they won't be capable of, right? So it's about the banks being capable of responding. Regulators had to act after the global financial crisis, but they will not find the solution of the crisis inside the existing model, the Swim or said adjust the business model to digitalization of financial services. And regulation is important. Uh, I always have uh, an institutional approach uh, in my research, uh, in my discussions with the industry, in uh, my literature. And also, I would say that everybody needs to do its part. So, the regulators need to change uh, somehow what they ask. Uh, it's, because digital is a different framework, because the world is in a different stage. Clients need to learn uh, more uh, to use digital in a different way. Banks need to change the business model. FinTech needs to adjust their perspective and their uh, ambition and when they all understand how to do that together in the platform economy, building ecosystem platforms and user-oriented platforms, I believe that we will start to see faster transformation compared to what we see today. It does take time, but I believe it is happening.
0: And are you seeing partnerships emerge through that process, the platformization of the industry?
1: Oh, yes. So ecosystem platforms, uh, require a partnership between a variety of actors. Uh, is the principle of open organizations and open uh, uh, innovation. In essence, uh, um, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You need to control what you believe is uh, your key part of the business uh, and your job points, uh, and then you need to partner with everyone else. Uh, that basically is better to resolving one problem. The issue here is that to do that, you need to have uh, a very good uh, architecture underneath uh, that makes sense, which is secure uh, which enables you to build services which are portable, interoperable on hybrid multi-cloud uh, approaches, uh, perspectives and technologies. And that's another type of work that I do, uh, understanding how this technology needs to be configured to make sure that when you start building these uh, ecosystem partner connections, they can go through a banking as a service or a banking as a platform in a way that, uh, they are compliant. Uh, they're easy to integrate. Uh, they're transparent, right? They're secure, and so on and so forth. So, there is work to be done to set the foundations right, uh, from monolithic to flexible architectures, and that enables you to start moving and shifting towards uh, the customer interface or the customer ecosystem, bringing the partners in in order to basically make a better job. But that is a, an essential precondition. Without, would not be really possible.
0: That's a vitally important point. Uh, absolutely. And uh, would you have particular recommendations for how organizations can go about having those firm foundations and the right kind of architecture?
1: For that, you need to wait a couple of months as I have a new research insight from IBM discussing exactly this topic, but if you like, uh, um, you need to work on four types of uh, practice and capabilities, uh, first of all, Embracing uh, hybrid cloud technologies and architecture is about a mindset shift in the way you work. So that's the first element. Um, Really, it's not just about agile per se. It's about you open the organization, you share the information, you interact with partners, uh, you think about uh, relationships instead of products, and so forth. Second. That needs to be underpinned by a clear uh, cloud-oriented security culture. Cloud um, security is always uh, a journey because you're never done, right? But you need to be there and so you need to shift security to the left, uh, so to embed it in every development process, so that uh, the new thing you do in continuous innovation does not require it to reinvent the wheel again of security. So you really fit for that type of uh, um, necessity. Then uh, you need to access data differently within the institution and uh, outside the institution is to be um, transparently filtered, uh, understood, uh, shareable, so on and so forth. And then the last but not least uh, is about artificial intelligence. Uh, so you need to do a couple of things. Automation is needed because you're working fast, you're working at scale, so you need to automatize things. And that was super important through the pandemic, those banks that did not have enough automation had the problem because people could not access the premises basically right through the work. So it becomes uh, a, a, an essential problem, the uh, issue, not just to try, but also to survive at some point, right? So you need to have it. Automation is important, reduce the cost, but also AI augments the relationship by providing new ways of looking at a problem, uh, building new insights, and so. It's not in itself autonomous and it it's to be enveloped in regulation but it's essential in order to do a better business. And, and if you like, um, hybrid cloud and trusted data, artificial intelligence relationships uh, and automation are the elements that make the foundations of my bank innovation quadrant, where you see emerge in these, uh, contextual banking and conscious banking platform strategies. So that's where I, I bring them all together.
0: Excellent. It's really useful to be able to picture those pillars and, and to be able to categorize it in those terms. One thing that we haven't talked about at all is sustainability. And of course, you know, that feeds into evolving regulation. It feeds into you know, evolving investor and, uh, and customer demand, and it feeds into purpose and, what, and what's driving financial services, organizations, and indeed technology firms where does this fit into the platform economy approach and uh, and how can you see these this approach and these sorts of technologies working together be a force for good
1: so esg is about transparency because otherwise it's good. and transparency can be delivered with three things first of all consciousness the second one is uh, data sharing and the third one is basically ai to understand and evaluate so why is that well first of all uh, I place uh, ESG around uh, the creation of uh, an engagement platform with customers where the advisory relationship enables a conversation about uncertainty. ESG is about uncertainty. That means we can be certain that uh, climate risk is there, some might debate, but we don't know exactly how accelerated it is, uh, which are the consequences and so forth, right? So we need to start learning uh, and discussing this problem, understanding that it's not easy to be resolved. It's not just by one product that will resolve the problem. So it's a continuous effort. And that means uh, being part of a, an ongoing uh, advice, not just that the advice we tell you, the climate risk is there, but it's a reasoning to get, right? It's, it's reminding ourselves about uh, the long-term perspective, not just the short-term uh, economic incentives. Second, uh, when you do that, uh, you need to start uh, differentiating among the companies uh, you want to invest to, for example, banks need to lend it to, that effectively, are complying with uh, an ESG perspective. And I believe that the European perspective is kind of nice because it's about the double materiality. So just proving that uh, there is effectively an impact beyond the performance of the product on capital markets, the impact on uh, the social responsibility space or the environment, which is, if you like, the easier to think of, right? And the most discussed. Now, how do you know that that happens in the data? So that means uh, that those banks of FinTech are capable of Creating an ecosystem of clients, right? That are connected to a data platform, that are opening the data coffer to demonstrate that effectively they are ESG compliance. They might differentiate in front of the clients. So I think that there is a space for FinTech and banks to create these platform ecosystems where data enables them to differentiate. Them so clients on board data are asked that to be more and more. So the platform, the ESG is creating this deeper in- connectivity data-driven between non-banking industry and financial services that basically is uh, the center place for the motivation of ESG today. And then of course is uh, artificial intelligence because uh, there's so much data information which is not um, data that is like quantitative uh, that you need to make an interpretation of, uh, that also you need the AI to make sure that you start systematizing and then you bring back uh, the insights which are needed. So that's the way I see the ESG evolution without this, uh, there would be a problem, with them, right? Those people will not be able to demonstrate effectively that they put the money and the effort where their mouth is. And we are releasing a wonderful uh, sustainability report from IBM in a few weeks, which is uh, the CEO study. So, I invite everybody to wait and check the IBM pages to read it through. It's, uh, it's truly revealing. And uh, yes, that's what I think.
0: Excellent. I think there's a big challenge there, but there's also an opportunity to use those pillars, create that real transparency, and then to be able to differentiate us.
1: You see again, if you're transparent in ESG, you can differentiate against the others because if we trust them, that is not greenwashing. So it goes again, again, and again, to the same principle It's difficult to see as a different differentiating element because it may contradict our usual way of thinking about it marketing and selling, but that's exactly the problem that most corporations have to do. They need to move out of uh, the marketing perspective of the 80s, uh, right? And get into the responsible marketing perspective, which is about stakeholder capitalism and sharing, right? So more transparency to build more trust and to have real impact. But with that would be very, very complex. So those that can make it happen, they can learn about it, I believe that they will have uh, a huge advantage against the others.
0: Yeah. So as you say, that shift in mindset, that's going to be the key differentiator. If you can turn your thinking away from the old ways, which should be happening anyway.
1: Nobody said it's easy, but it's needed. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> it's a journey. And uh, as you say, these things take time, but there's a very real need there because otherwise organizations are, are going to fail um, with all the various different challenges and various different demands in today's market. So. I think that's a really good note to sum up on, actually. I think transparency, shift of mindset, making sure that you've got the right architecture and the right foundations in in place and and ways of focusing those around those core pillars that you've discussed. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. We're looking forward to seeing the two new research pieces coming out that you mentioned and uh, hopefully shedding some more light on that. And perhaps we'll be able to talk to you again once those are released and discuss some of the findings.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much for hosting me today. It was a wonderful conversation, Rachel.
0: Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thank you very much indeed. I'm sure there's a lot that our audience can learn from what we've been discussing and certainly quite a lot uh, that I'm going to take away in terms of how the markets are evolving and how organizations are needing to evolve in order to compete in the current marketplace. Thank you. Ciao.
1: Ciao.